Um, thank you guys for gathering with us here. If you're new here to Mission, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission, and today we kick off a new study in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so today I'm going to be specifically reading from 1st John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So please follow along with me. If you do not have a Bible, own a Bible, then there should be one located near to you, a black Bible. Uh, please take that from the pew. Let that be a gift from our church family uh, to you. Go home, read it a lot every day, all right? So let's read together the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we, we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it <coughs> and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim as also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together, church family. Lord, we are so thankful Lord, that we start a new year as a church family. Lord, how much grace upon grace upon grace has been poured out upon us, Lord, that as of tomorrow we begin our eighth year as a church. So God, we are just humbled how that you have taken a bunch of broken people who came, Lord, who were often filled with shame, who are often burdened. And you brought us to such a, a family as this, the family of Mission Church. So Lord, we are thankful for that, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would not only be a place with sound gospel doctrine, but Lord, that we would be a place of sound gospel culture. So Lord Jesus, as we preach, as we proclaim, as we worship you, Jesus, as we seek to make disciples to the ends of the earth, Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray that this next year, Father, Lord, would be one filled with joy. Lord, one filled with strength to endure. One filled with mercy. Lord, one filled with ministry. Lord, one filled with just a, a, a cauterizing of our faith in you, Jesus. So Lord, this morning, may the listeners stay awake. May the preacher stay out of the way. And Lord, may you work. May you work in every one of our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Happy New Year's, church family. Um, I, I don't get to tell you this enough verbally from my mouth, or, or probably like I should, but uh, man, how much I, I love you and appreciate each and every one of you and look forward to uh, preaching the word to you this morning. So uh, let's just jump right into it here. Uh, today we kick off a uh, continuation, as Pastor Justin mentioned earlier, uh, for the last two years and now beginning our third year, we have been looking specifically at a church inside of the New Testament. This church is the church that's resting inside of a city called Ephesus. And we've got more information about this church and what was happening around this church than, than any other church inside of the scripture. And so we were, we're beginning literally our third year into looking at this particular church and its lifespan. 
And so in 2018, we kicked off January talking about how that this church inside of the city of Ephesus was planted by a man named Paul and and that this city was filled with a lot of sexual immorality, that that there is a uh, a goddess there that is worshipped, the goddess of of Artemis and and all of the things that involved inside of this very, very pagan, 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 pagan place. It's a very wealthy city, uh, a very um, city that was on the cutting edge. A lot of people look to the city of Ephesus for a lot of different reasons. And so we, we covered that inside the book of Acts. Then we spent the rest of 2018 uh, looking at the book of Eph- uh, Ephesians, where Paul is writing to that church, trying to course correct them. Because when he first leaves them after planting, he says, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm scared that when I leave here, that there are going to be members that rise up within the church that are really wolves, and they're going to try to destroy the church, but also not just members, but, but they're going to be elders. They're going to be pastors as well. They're going to rise up to try to destroy this church. And a few years later, when he writes the book of Ephesians, guess what's happened? That very thing has taken place. They've lost their identity. They're they're struggling. There's lots of division that's taking place within this church. And then some years go by, and he he writes to his young protege, a young man named Timothy. He writes first and second Timothy. And Timothy is the elder. He is the pastor, one of the pastors that is at the church of Ephesians. And he has been bombarded by false teachers he's been bombarded by false accusations and he's really wavering on man do I stand firm in this like is this all worth it right I need to find a new job I'm not so sure about this because not only is he enduring great suffering but Paul himself is is placed inside of a prison and in in death is coming to his leader and so it's causing him to wrestle uh, with his face and his, his pastoral ministry as there are these issues that are taking place inside of this church and the brother simply doesn't know what to do. So Paul writes to him. Well, lo and behold, as uh, church history tells us and as the Bible tells us, uh, this church continues on and, and years later, the disciple of Jesus named John, one of the sons of Zebedee, also known as uh, John the Revelator, because he's going to write the, the gospel or the, the book of Revelation. Um, he also wrote the gospel of John, but he writes these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what's interesting about this is that, that John was known as probably the youngest disciple in the bunch. He, he is the beloved one, or at least that's what John calls him, that Jesus calls him in the Gospel of John. He says, I'm the beloved one, but he never really mentions his name, but we all know who it was, all right? I have a great name that Jesus calls me, but it's only between me and Jesus. I'll leave that mystery to you all. But John writes this, um, these letters, because he loves the people. And what's interesting about what's happened inside of John's life um, Christian history tells us that, that John pretty much hung around Jerusalem until about 70 A.D. Why did he do that? Well, that's where the center and hub of, of Judaism was, but that's also where the central hub of Christianity was. And as the last living disciple, apostle of Jesus then this is where his ministry took place. He was one of the the leaders for all of the churches as he kind of held things together there inside of Jerusalem. But inside of Jerusalem, around 70 AD, something really big happened. It was destroyed. And so several people, including John, who was taking care of a very special lady, Mary, the mother of Jesus, if you remember hanging upon the cross, though, though... Mary had other sons and daughters other than Jesus. Jesus professionally or or from the cross looks at John, the beloved disciple, and says, this is your mama, right? And he says to Mary, this is your son. And what he was directing to him was, it's now your responsibility to take care of Mary, so it's believed that John and Mary, because there, there is a little bit of discrepancy here on, on whether Mary died outside of Jerusalem in a city between Jerusalem or in Ephesus, um, or 
If you actually go to Ephesus today, there is a place where it's believed that she's buried, okay? So somewhere between Jerusalem and Ephesians, I think it's the right thing to say here without fully knowing, um, but Mary and John, their final resting places, believed by many, is to be in the city of Ephesus. Paul, excuse me, John writes the Gospel of John from Ephesus. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from Ephesus, and he gets the revelation and it eventually puts it all together as well from these areas. And so um, it's really interesting to see that at the, the end of all that the church that Paul planted, that Timothy pastored, is one day going to be um, pastored by, by John himself. And this is kind of the text and context of where this book lies. We see that this conflict or the conflict within the Ephesian church that is continuing to take place. Specifically, it's believed that there's a group of people within the church now that when John is one of the disciples or one of the pastors of it, that there's a group of people within the church that have decided to leave the church, and lo and behold, if you've ever been a part of church long enough, are trying to stir up problems for those who have stayed faithful to that congregation. Now, this has left the people kind of wavering. They're, they're wondering. They're kind of having some doubts. They're, they're questioning. Specifically, they're now questioning their assurance of their salvation. You know, when, when terrible things happen in our lives, and, and specifically here within our church family, it can often make us wonder uh, what's really taking place. It makes us wonder about their salvation. It can make us wonder about the pastors. It can make us even wonder about our own salvation. And so John writes in order to assure these readers or to help them know, man, do I know this Jesus? Is any of this true? See, divisive people have always been in the church. They've always been there. They've always been a part of a church. And the smarter they sound, the more convincing they can be. They often groom younger, weaker believers into thinking that they are less or that they in some way have missed it. So John, or it's said of John, that when he wrote the Gospel of John, that he was doing so as an evangelistic letter. And so John writes from Ephesians, but because of how long it would take us to preach through uh, the Gospel of John, uh, we've decided to use the condensed version of the Gospel of John, which is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There's many parallels between those books, and uh, we just we, we want to get to some Old Testament text in this year. We've not done that in quite some time, and so we, we knew if we started through the Gospel of John, it was going to take me like five years to preach through it. So we're opting to do 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and, and going from there. So we have the Gospel of John that appears to be very evangelistic. He's trying to win someone to the Lord by writing these letters. But 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, Third John is, is really about the sanctification of these believers inside of the church at Ephesus. John wants them to know, just like the church that I grew up in, I don't know if this was a Baptist thing, but it was definitely a Pentecostal thing uh, that I, I grew up in that kind of tribe within Christianity. Um, but you'd have these preachers, they always had a handkerchief in their pocket. Uh, usually they were, they'd eaten lots of food. Uh, before they had come, and they would always preach and say things very sweaty-like, and as they were preaching, they would be like, beyond the shadow of a doubt! <laughs> Anybody ever heard that before? Baptist people? See, all the Church of Christ people are definitely not shaking their head. <laughs> um, but if, if you grew up beyond the shadow, I don't even know what that means. I got a doctorate degree, still have no idea what that means. Um, they would also say things I want you to know that you know that you know that you know that you know. And the more that you repeated that, and the more people got excited about you saying that you know that you know, this is where you say amen, 
right? See, Cash is doing it. Thank you. Um, clap them hands. You tell them, Pastor, and the more excited you get about it, guess what he keeps doing? That you know. That you know. That you know. Ha, <laughs> That you know. I mean, it's, it was a, quite an experience, and then somebody takes off running, and a woman squeals like a cat. I mean, it was, it, was, it was church, right? We were having church on Sunday mornings when that happened. And y'all are all looking at me like, I wish my sister wasn't sick, because she'd be like, mm-hmm. Miss Diane and Alan know what I'm talking about, all right? We know, you Baptists and Church of Christ people, y'all missed out. We had a spectacle every Sunday. That's how you knew you went to church, is when you didn't have preaching. Did you hear me? That's how you knew you went to church on those Sundays. When the Lord got to moving so much that the, everybody got to shouting and you sang victory in Jesus for two hours and then everybody went home after they ate a potluck or a, a buffet somewhere. Anyway, and that had nothing to do with this. All right, so we see here that, that John is writing, though, with that sort of mentality that that he wants those who are truly in Christ, guess what he wants them to know? That they know, that they know, that they know, that they know that they're in Christ, that they're saved. He wants them to have blessed assurance. Now all the Baptists are like, oh, I know what you're talking about now, right? He wants them to have assurance of their salvation. He doesn't want them walking around as I did for 19 years of my life trying to have a daily evaluation on Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Does he love me? Does he not? All right? He wants them beyond the shadow of a doubt to know that they know that they know that they can have assurance of salvation while simultaneously also making false converts aware that they're not really saved. So those are the two things that he's trying to communicate within side of 1 John. And I know that this is a lot of you know, biographical, but we're trying to set up for what will be, you know, 10 to 20 weeks of preaching through these letters, okay? So bear with me. Nerds, thank you. Others of you, just hold on, all right? I'm, I'm getting there, all right? So he, he wants us to know these things. So there's conflict within the church. There's confusion. There's disruptions. There's divisions. And people are leaving the church and those who are remaining are, are, are really, they're, they're teetering. They're, they're, they're trying to really figure this whole thing out. What do we do? What do we do? Is this for real? Is this church for real? Is Jesus who he says that he is? How can, how can I know that I'm saved? Sometimes within Christianity, we call this the crisis of faith, Right? And uh, we watch as our children go through it. Hopefully, you have been through it. We need to understand that the crisis of faith isn't a bad thing. That the crisis of faith is something that you need to go into and through. You need to not push away from the table. You need to push into the table. You need to you know, stand firm at that seat as you wrestle with your own doubts. See, parents, specifically speaking to you, as you watch your child, if you're truly trying to pastor them and raise them um, in a godly home, even as my parents did me, that there, there comes this point in time, and, and, and for a lot of those years, your child's faith is, is really your faith. But there often comes a time in that young person's life, and it can happen at any age, when, when there is a, a, a transition from where they not only have their parents' faith, but they are wrestling with, is this my faith? Don't freak out about that. Because you, you would rather them understand that they don't believe than to be a false convert, hoping to get into heaven because mama and daddy believe. Okay? I went through this crisis of faith at 19. I watched Justin go through this crisis. Okay? seen some of you go through this and so it's it's not a bad thing god is big enough to handle you and i's doubts god is is able to handle your child's crisis you want them to know jesus personally and if that gets really ugly and hairy and they begin asking you all sorts of questions don't completely freak out or at least don't do it in front of them 
do that later, or call me or something, all right? We can freak out together over coffee. But don't, it's, it's okay. They, they need to embrace and know who Jesus is for themselves. They need to be confident in the gospel that you have been professing to them for however many years. John is speaking to adults, and yet these adults are going through a crisis of faith. Who is this Jesus? Am I really saved? Can I lose my salvation? Those are all questions that, that we as a community of faith, as a church that is wanting to be a part of a, a gospel culture, that we need to be able to handle, whether that's in an MC or a Sunday morning or over coffee or over dinner, just to go, man, this is, this is where I am. This is the, the realness of where I am sitting. I want you to know God can handle that. He sees that. He can handle your doubts. He's bigger than your doubts. So Paul, excuse me, I keep saying that. I've talked about Paul for years. John, John, inside of this letter, let's, let's, let's break this down quickly here this morning. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life made manifest that, that we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, John also writes, and, and he writes the Gospel of John, and we can kind of see some parallel ideas here that, that John is talking about the Word and He's talking about Jesus and that, that Jesus has always been. See, he's trying to establish within this group of people of the importance of the personhood of Jesus. I don't have time to dive into complete systematic nerdiness this morning over the, the two natures of Jesus. But one of the things that is very important within the life of this church is that they would understand that Jesus is the word of life. And that specifically, as we see within these, these passages here, that, that Jesus, and I'll get to why this is important in just a second, but, but that Jesus, he is God. Now, I know you're all sitting here and thinking, duh. No, no that's a huge deal, okay? That's a very, that's a very controversial situation that we talk about when we start talking about that Jesus is God, all right? Yet simultaneously, Jesus is human. Jesus has always been. There's never been a time in the history of everything that Jesus has not existed. Jesus is the creator God. All things were created for him and by him. He has been since the beginning and will be there infinitely into infinity. Jesus is God. He is not a created being. And I, I, I say that with, with the utmost importance of trying to get you to understand that because it is a very popular belief by many cults and other people who are trying to say that Jesus is not God. That he is just a man. But he is not. He is, he is God. And that's important to these people. But but simultaneously, Jesus is the incarnated one. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that he is the incarnated God. So he is, he is God, but that he is also, he is human. And so John, as he's writing this to the churches, he, he wants them to understand not to slighten at all the divinity of Jesus, but that they would understand that as Genesis chapter 1 states, let us create them in our image that is showing this tri trinity, the triune kind of relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that they have always been, that they are in perfect relationship with each other, and that, that Jesus did wasn't an afterthought by God after seeing humanity's sin that he would one day say, all right, I'm going to send Jesus. 
Did you know the plan of Jesus pre-exists Genesis chapter 1? Have you ever thought about that? The cross was planned before Adam and Eve ever ate the fruit. Now, can we reconcile all those things here? No, you figure that out. I'm going to ignore you because you ain't God. All right? Like, you can't. We can't reconcile all of that. But that's what when we say things like Christianese, like, man, Jesus wasn't plan B. I mean, get a t-shirt. Can't sell it at Lifeway anymore unless you put it online. But you, hopefully you can make a lot of money if you did that. All right? Jesus is not plan B. But what do we, we often don't think about what that means. It was always the plan to send Jesus. It was always a plan for him to die. It was always the plan for him to be resurrected. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And so John, in, in writing this letter, trying to establish this within and get, get kind of course correct this church, he's wanting to remind them once again of the person, nature, character of Jesus and the importance of seeing him as both God but also as man. Notice, he uses these terms. We, we have seen eyewitnesses. We're eyewitnesses of this. Like we've, we've heard it with our own ears. We, we've seen him with our own eyes. We, we've watched him. We've touched him with our own hands. Very similar to the way that it's described as, as God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. John is saying, man, we walked with God and his name is Jesus. We touched him. Like we saw him. We ate with him. He walked with us wherever he went. We went. We were eyewitnesses. I saw these things with my own eyes. And, and we want this church that is struggling to know. Man, there are eyewitnesses account, which means way more back then than eyewitnesses accounts mean now. And John's trying to get them to understand this, the importance of this. Within this church, and I'll share with you why this is important and why it's also important for us today, is within this church there's something that, that you know, Christianity has kind of put a name to it. It's called Gnosticism. And, and Gnostics are a group of people. They still exist. Many of them just don't know what we call them behind their backs. But they're Gnostics. What are Gnostics? Gnostics are, are typically people who claim to be Christians, but in parentheses, just so you know, they're not. But they claim to be Christians, and, and yet they believe that salvation has come to them by some superior secret knowledge. Many of the Gnostics do not believe that Jesus was actually human. They believe that he was a spirit some ghost that, that really looked human, but that he never lost his divinity. He never became completely man. They also believed this, that this secret knowledge also allowed them to understand that, that the body is made up of both the flesh and of the spirit or the soul. Both of those things are the same things in regards to the scripture. So uh, uh, we're uh, made up of two different things. you got the flesh and you've got your spirit here. And so what you do in the flesh, though, if you've truly been saved, doesn't affect your spirit. So what does that mean? That literally means you're free to do whatever you want to do. Because what is done in the flesh has no bearing on what happens to your spirit. And that's how they were living their lives. They began to question these Gnostics within inside of the, the church at Ephesus. They began to question the humanity and deity of Jesus. They also began to question um, what are, how are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus. That there, there, there's lots of freedom. There's so much freedom here. And so now you can begin to see the tension that's lying within the church as people who are claiming to your, be your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're claiming to be followers of Jesus and yet now are saying things like Jesus isn't human. 
And also, hey, brothers and sisters, live however you want to live because how you live in the flesh has no bearing upon your spirit. And this is what John begins to speak into. We need to get this, brothers and sisters. Jesus was not 50% man and 50% God. He was 100% God and 100% man. And that makes him uniquely unique. Jesus is God, man. Non-Christians don't have a problem with Jesus. And you're even talking about Jesus. It's when you say Jesus is God that the division takes place. That he is God's son. That's where the separation begins to take place. And yet this is unique of only like Jesus. There's a very popular cult inside of our world that, that says that Jesus was not a God, that he, he was such a good human, he became a God. And that you and I can have that same fortune. And those are the people that believe and are the nicest probably people on the planet that believe that. And yet, this, this reality that God is, or Jesus is 100% God and 100% man is what makes him set apart. He is different than all things. And this is why the incarnation is so important for us to understand. Inside of mission, our, our language here is, and if you're a member here, or if you've gone through our membership classes before, um, you'll quickly understand that when it comes to theological issues, we believe in two different things. We believe that there are closed-handed issues. Right? These are things that all Christians, based on the, what the scripture says, this is also what Dr. Moeller would call like first-tier beliefs. Like, for you to be a Christian, you must believe these things. All right? These are things like the virgin birth. Jesus is the only way to heaven. But also found within that is the belief that Jesus is God-man. To be a Christian, we, we hang our hat on, on those and, and many other beliefs. And in this hand, it's got to be open-handed, right? What version of the Bible that you use? Whether or not we all need to be wearing shirts and tie because we came here to church and Jesus gave his best, so you should give your best and the way you give your best by dressing up every Sunday. That's what I was told as a kid, all right? Uh, to drink beer or not, but what kind of beer? All right, are we talking about, right? Um, th those are all open-handed issues. Those can be freedoms that are found inside of Jesus, but they're open-handed. Um, many Christians can be all over the place on these open-handed issues, but in regards to the orthodox things, we can't be, right? So we've got on secondary and third tertiary issues, we, we've got all sorts of believers in here that believe all sorts of things. And you are free to believe those things, but we should not divide over them. Right? But it should be said for every one of us that there is a standard of belief that are closed-handed. And those are things that we fight over. And that's why our fist is closed over those things. If we lose those, we lose what it means to be Christian, all right? But what happens a lot of times in church is we don't like to argue over these things, do we? We don't like to be divisive over these things. We like to be divisive over these things. And I grew up in a, in a town not too far from here where people like to fight. Have you ever been, seen a slap fight? I know at ESPN has like a whole sporting event where people, grown men slap each other. If you've ever seen that, that's weird. All right, it looks really strange to see grown people slapping at each other. But that's what we love to do in church. But you need to understand, not only were there open-handed issues that this church was fighting over, but they were fighting over closed-handed issues. The divine nature of Jesus. Is he God and is he man? Is he both? Jesus is the word of life. The next part that we see inside of this passage, let's read verse 3 and 4. Uh, That's which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you 
too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What John is trying to get the people to understand is he has been an eyewitness, as they have been an eyewitness. Fellowship with Jesus leads to fellowship with other people. All right, Fellowship with Jesus leads to fellowship with other people. See, their fellowship with Jesus led to a radical devotion to him, but also to his mission. Did you notice that? He's saying, man, we, we've seen these things. We've been eyewitnesses of these things. And, man, we want, we want you to join this party. We want you to join this culture. We want you to join this family. We want you to be a part of this. See, when people have met and encountered the resurrection of Jesus, they, they can't help but be compelled to share that with other people. If I could say anything, as we enter into our eighth year, beginning tomorrow, on January 6th of 2013, we began and planted Mission Church publicly. And if I could say that anything that I've seen as a a consistent, we've had ebbs and flows and all those, but a a consistent lack within our church, and I don't don't mean this to be beat up, I mean this from the top down, has been a, a lack of engaging and inviting others to this Jesus outside of these walls. That was not common within the early church. That would not have been said of them. And they were so convinced that Jesus is who he says that he is. They went to all costs, to, to, the, to the very end, to death itself, so that, that people would come to know and be invited into this fellowship with Jesus. Be in fellowship with us. We, we, we are in union with Christ. And because we're united with Christ, guess what we want you to do? We want you to be united with Christ. And one of the greatest testimonies in that is the very life of the church itself. Fellowship with inside the scripture means to have not potluck dinners. You ever notice how we love to do that in church? We, we're having a fellowship. We're having a fellowship dinner. Right? It's usually always involving food, which, which it can. But when we're talking about biblical fellowship, we're talking about something much deeper than just having a potluck meal. We're talking about having common belief. We're talking about having a common objective. We're talking about having the same values and the same goals. That's what fellowship means. Brothers and sisters, you, as we've said before, and as it's been said before us, you have way more in common with the person sitting under a mango tree in Africa who loves Jesus than you do your white neighbor across the street who's a pagan atheist. Way more. An infinite amount more. This was witnessed this week. Pastor Todd and Leanne aren't here this morning. They have family that live in Orlando. Lucky them. So they surprised the girls with a trip to the land of the mouse this week. Free place to stay. Got family down there. It's awesome. Good for them, right? Celebrate for them. As they prepared to leave on Tuesday, they got a call on Monday of this week saying that Leanne's grandfather, who lives down there, he's 92 years of age, um, had been having some issues and that they had admitted him into the hospital. Luckily, the Crosbys were going ahead and heading down there anyway. They'd already bought tickets to the Magical Kingdom. And as they're, they're going down there, though, they also know simultaneously that Grandpa is really, really ill. So this week, Pastor Justin and I and several others have been trying to care for them from several hundred miles away as, as Lee Ann's 92-year-old grandfather is, is dying in front of them. What was supposed to be a magical vacation has turned into um, both life and death as they've gone to the Magic Kingdom to spend time with their girls and have lots of smiles and eat cheerios, and, which are amazing, and uh, they're 
only to leave there to go to the hospital and stay most of the nights. And what's interesting about Leanne, and I asked Leanne if I could share some of this with you guys this morning. I've even been talking with them this morning. As her grandfather has had many ups and downs where it looks like he's going to make it, and then he, he, he digresses, and then he gets better, and then he digresses. So he'll come to for a while, and as he's been coming to, his, her grandfather is a believer, but many of her family inside of Florida are not. And so there's this awkward tension in the room. Very staunchly against and radically for. All mourning the loss of a 92-year-old man who believes in Jesus. Whenever Pastor Todd and Leanne, and this speaks very much of them, whenever they've been there, surrounded by their family of believer and non-believer, Pastor Todd and Leanne have been taking turns just reading the Bible over their grandfather. And he's been talking to them. And the other night, God graced them with this awesome opportunity as they were reading, Leanne was reading the Bible to her grandfather. And again, it's filled with this mixture of diversity, of belief. This 92-year-old dying man begins to just raise his hand in the hospital bed. Saying, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. And in that room, there were, of course, Todd and Leanne. Praise Jesus. Praise Him. Praise Jesus. While frustrated non believers looked on. And talking with Pastor Todd yesterday, He was talking about one thing is for sure in this very weird week has been that the gospel has been proclaimed to all of our non-Christian family members who have been present. See, brothers and sisters, when you meet Jesus at all costs, you share Jesus. When you've had fellowship with Jesus, you want other people to have fellowship with Jesus. When you've encountered the the resurrection of Jesus, when you encounter Jesus through His Word, when you encounter Jesus on the mission field as as several of us have had, we've we've had this palatable, and I'm sure the the Vanderpools and and other people, if you've traveled to to the world to, to... preach the gospel to be that like that there's this tangible taste like presence of Jesus in those moments and sometimes right now some of you are like I have no idea is my pastor done lost his mind and going back to his Pentecostal roots no all right but there is this real there is this amount line there's this tangible like man Jesus like he ain't here like I ain't saying some white dude showed up with a beard with blue eyes and blonde hair and he's like I'm not talking about that, but I'm just saying that there's this this word becomes flesh in that moment as as you're sharing and you're pleading with people to to come into fellowship with Jesus that you can once again kind of touch, taste, and see that the Holy Spirit is at work in that moment. And as one of your pastors who has experienced that, and I know that there are other pastors as well, but just as your brother in Christ, I long for all of you to experience that touch, taste, feel of Jesus. Jesus, but but let it be said, it doesn't just have to happen across the sea somewhere. There are lots of people in Bowling Green lost, dying, and going to hell that need to be in fellowship with Jesus, need to be in fellowship with a local church. That's why I love the Emmanuel Church mantra in Nashville, Tennessee. This is what it says. I'm a complete idiot, but my future is very bright. And anyone can get in on this. Is that mission? Like, what what are we inviting people to if we do invite them to it? Are we that kind of place 
when we are engaging in this, that, that man, we, we, we want people to be a part of this fellowship, but it's not just about belonging to a church. Not just. That's not to, to lower the responsibility and importance of belonging to a church. But ultimately, we are inviting people to Jesus. And you've got to always remember that. We're inviting people to Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, when we miss the mark with gospel doctrine, closed-handed, then everything crumbles. But we simultaneously need to understand that when we have great gospel doctrine, but we don't practice gospel culture, it simultaneously loses its effect and reality. And so that's why, that's why there's so many people militantly against the church and Christians, right? It's because this gospel doctrine that they claim to profess and to believe isn't practically lived out when you join the fellowship. And we as a church family, as, as we go forward, and I still believe that our best days are ahead of us, as, as we move forward as a church family, uh, we've got to make sure, because I, I, I would contend and fight for the reality that, that we have good gospel doctrine here. But we need to raise the standard in our gospel culture here. What that looks like and how that is expressed. That's not just the pastoral responsibility, that's the people responsibility. And coming in and getting some preaching for an hour, hour and a half, and leaving isn't a part of a fellowship. That's getting some preaching. You can get that on a podcast. You can get that in a book. But belonging to the church, because there's this wavering that's happening with inside of this. And so we need to make sure that not only at mission that we have good gospel doctrine, like what John was trying to preach to the church at Ephesus, but that also that we have a good gospel culture. And so that doesn't mean that we always do everything right. It's that when in a gospel culture, when you really mess up, what do you do? You seek forgiveness. We're not talking about a perfect family here. We're a family that falters often. We're a family that messes up. We're a family that does not know what to do in many cases. And yet, are humble enough to say we don't. That we missed it. That we got it wrong. That's a gospel culture. It's a gospel culture that says, what, what's the lyric of the song? All who are broken, like if you're filled with shame, like, like come. And that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church that, I, man, we all got problems up in here, right? Like I don't even know everything about you, and you don't know everything about me, but you don't want me telling everybody up here everything I know about all of you, Right? Like we some broken, messed up, shame-filled, lost, wavering, teetering, drifting people in this room. Praise be to God. We know the one who can put that all back together. He's still working on me. I'm not what I used to be. And I'm not who I'm going to be. Remember that song? He is the potter. I, I'm the clay. He's, we used to learn all these sign language things when I was a kid. These Christian songs. He's still working on me. Is, is, has Mission Church a car lot or is it a mechanic shop do you know the difference there are lots of car lots I'm sorry if that's what you're looking for ain't no beamers here church is for the sick it's not for the well 
for the sick. Let's be that kind of place. Let's be that kind of church. I love you. Thankful to know you. Thankful to be known. Thankful to be a part of this this family. I want to be a part of this family. The idea of Mission Church no longer existing used to really mess with me. I used to think, man, if Mission doesn't happen or if it closes its doors one day, what will I do? And, and I want you to hear it when I say this. is like, you know what I would do? I would go right down the road because there's lots of churches in our town that need a pastor. That's what I would do. But I so long to be a part of this. I so long to, to live the rest of my days as a member of this body of believers. Because of the striving toward and desiring to see in a place gospel doctrine and gospel culture collide and be lived out. And that's what I believe that God has for us. That's what I believe that God desires of us. There's so much more here, I'm not going to get to. But I, I really want to ask you to, to, to join that fellowship. To make your membership mean something. To really not just hear Pastor Justin say every week, you know, try to be cute like every week because he says, like, worship Jesus, make disciples. How do I say it differently? I can't, right? It's worship Jesus, make disciples, multiply. Like for that not to become just a statement on a website or a statement from a pastor, but for you to really join in with us in what that means, not just in knowing it, but expressing it in the life of our church. And that is really attractive to a lost and dying world. Would you stand with me?